and welcome to the Nosy Fox Podcast with me, Natasha Murta. Each episode will be an interview with someone that I find interesting and has a story to tell that I believe is worth sharing. Some of the people I'll be talking to are people that I know, but some are strangers that for one reason or another, I wanted to get to know. This is a podcast about people and storytelling, two of my favorite things. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. My guest this week on the Nosy Fox podcast is 36-year-old Owen Kernan. I met Owen for the first time on a very rainy and miserable day in Hoth on the 9th of February 2020. At the beginning of the last lockdown here in Ireland, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I was sick of working from home and living alone and not being able to see people. So I started painting and I fell into a world of creative happiness. I started to sell my paintings, which was great. But what was even better was the joy they seemed to be giving people online. So I started sending my paintings to strangers who perhaps needed a little lift during what was a very tough time. I would put a photo up on my Twitter and ask people to message me with the details of someone they thought might like to receive a painting. Owen was one of these people, and when I drove to Hoth to give it to him, we went for a coffee and chatted for what seemed like hours. We both felt there was a wonderful sense of serendipity to our meeting, and we've stayed in touch ever since. Owen had a breakdown two years ago, and all of a sudden he felt like his world was falling apart around him. This is Owen's story. The end of 2018 was when um, my mental health issues began. Uh, I won't say that's when they were noticeable for me. Um, A lot of these... I suppose problems that people develop can can develop without you even realizing um, they can develop as a kind of an undercurrent in your life uh, that becomes a normal thing in your life um, and as a result it just becomes your day to day it becomes the the way you live um, and it's only after a period of time that either you or those around you uh, become aware of it or become honest about it. That's the other side of it. It's not necessarily just become aware of it, but become honest about it. So for me, um, if, when I think back on it now, it was really towards the end of 2018 was when things started to get very difficult. I think much further previous to that or prior to that, um, things would have also been rumbling um, in, in, in the background. But they weren't necessarily as obvious or as acute um, or as as difficult. Um, So that was kind of when I noticed it. Um, Sorry, that was when I I suppose when it became apparent that there was something going on. But really it was it was more towards the summer of 2019, um, the, the early, early months of the summer. So kind of May, June 2019 was when things got really bad. Um, when when I fell off the cliff, as I describe it, um, where numerous different, if you can imagine the spokes of a wheel um, and each one of them is a different part of your life or a different thing going on in your life. And all of those, and, and you're traveling inwards on each one of those spokes in, e- in each of those things in your life. And they all come together into this one point in the middle. And that was what happened to me. Everything just met. Um, I was trying to manage all these different things. And unfortunately, they all got on top of me eventually. Um, and, and that was when I crashed. Owen, oh, was there anything in particular that caused the crash? So I think um, 
the best way to describe it is throughout my life, um, probably I'm going to say from my early teens onwards, um, there was various things, various things because of my personality that would have allowed me to become a little bit vulnerable um, or, or uh, kind of not necessarily the the alpha male in among my friends. Um, and, and as a result, I suppose I became in a way seen as the weak one or seen as the soft one, the soft touch. Um, and that would have meant that I was constantly trying to live up to their expectations. I was constantly trying to do things to make people like me, I suppose, um, or, 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 you know, work towards that. Um, and that then, that followed me for my whole life. Um, it, it followed me into my later friendships. Um, it followed me into my college friendships. It followed me into my work, my early work relationships um, as well. And, and this constant need for knowing that I'm doing the right thing or, or knowing that people are pleased with what I'm doing. Um, if, if I felt that I had done something wrong um, or felt that I hadn't pleased someone, I would actually go above and beyond to try and then please them after that um, and in a way that was a vicious circle because you would never get the feedback that you were looking for um, and 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 it's not that you're needy that's not the it's it's not that it's it's just a lack of confidence it's a lack of self-worth it's a lack of value in yourself um, and it's a lack of belief in what you do being the right thing so that was kind of my my I suppose part of my personality um, development was this lack of lack of worth, lack of value. Um, I, and again, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. I just thought that was me. I thought that was the way the way the world worked. So you add that into um, a very intense work ba- work life balance, um, which was not only intense but also very isolating. Um, you'll be familiar with the world of production um, and when you're a producer you are the last person people think about um, you worry about your crew and you worry about your clients but you have never have anyone worrying about you um, or looking after you so as a result when you're trying to keep your crew happy because they've worked a long day or you're trying to keep your clients happy because they want the snow to be a bit warmer um, you're then never getting a chance to think about yourself um, never getting a chance to say, do you know what? I'm doing the right thing here. Um, no one tells you that. The clients always want better. The crew are always moaning, <laughs> you know, for, for the, the best way I can put it. Um, and so as a result, you're, you're constantly fighting fires. Um, and that's hugely intense. It's, and it's very isolating. Um, and unfortunately, I was doing a lot of that while working from home. So when you're working from home, running your own business... You don't have anyone to bounce off. You don't have anyone to talk about these problems, to tell you that you're doing a good thing, to to build, you know, help you build trust in yourself. Um, and so as a result, that impacted my confidence even more. Um, and again, didn't realize that that was happening. So these are all the different spokes that are kind of beginning to, to, to come together. And then the, the last one that I suppose I became very aware of um, was around family and around uh, having a family. Um, I was aware I was getting on in life. Um, I was aware my partner Carolina was getting on in life, and that brings with it its its own natural biological clock. Um, and all the time, 
I was hearing from different places, oh, and you need to think about having a family. Have you started thinking about it? You know, you can't wait. Um, and I was, you know, naturally, I'm a, I'm a risk averse person. Um, I, I like to be more cautious than, than risky. And so in my head, I was saying, well, I need to make sure I have enough money and I need to make sure I have enough um, business and I need to make sure that I could, you know, look after a child. Because in my head, I'd built up all these assumptions of what having a family meant um, and, and what bringing a child into the world meant. And I had all these assumptions, which I'd never really spoken to anyone about um, because I felt the pressure from everyone of, you know, you need to have a family. So I couldn't question it. I couldn't. I couldn't say, no, that's wrong, you know, because I was trying to keep everyone happy. But yet in my own head, I was completely stuck in this. But I can't say what I want to say. I can't talk about what I want to talk about. And um, whether it's right or wrong, I, I can't I can't tell anyone that maybe I'm not agreeing with what they say. And um, so for a long while, this was playing on my mind. Um, and, and I mean, to the point where I couldn't be around my friend's kids because I was afraid if I was around my friend's kids that you know Carolina might be there as well and she might really want to or she might enjoy spending time with that kid and I couldn't be seen to you know even have to think about do I want to be with a kid or not or you know that kind of thing and so all of a sudden no matter where you went you know if you saw a kid being pushed on the street you knew I in my head I knew oh Carolina's looking at that kid going I really want that kid and I'm going I don't know do I want it and so it's a horrible juxtaposition to be in in your head. Um, it's a horrible way to be thinking. And that came kind of, again, to a crescendo um, with, when I had a conversation with my parents early in, early, in, early in 2018, where we sat down. It was a bit like a, one of these family meetings, if you want to call it that. Uh, myself, Carolina, my parents. And in fairness to my parents, they were doing nothing but good uh, they, they had, in fairness to my parents, they had nothing but good behind what they were doing, um, which was they were offering us support, they were offering us help, they were offering us, um, you know, to move back in with them if we wanted to think about having a kid, just to take away all those kind of worries of, you know, babysitting, money, all those kind of things, to help us with that. But again, I was sitting there going, I don't know if I want this. I really don't know if I want this. And yet this is what's being pushed on me in a way. Um so eventually, anyway, again, without me realizing, all these things just came came together, and I felt like I my life was out of control. And the last thing that happened then, which is probably for me, when I look back on it, maybe the more minor of the things, but I've never really been able to confirm that, which is through my love of the water and through my um, you know friendships that I have within that. Um, it's a funny thing, but you're constantly either getting dressed up, getting dressed down or getting into a wetsuit. One of the, one of those three things. And when you're surrounded by people who are athletic, um, are, you know, naturally fit. And I'm not going to say bodybuilders. It's not that kind of physique. It's it's more just stamina, but also looking well, looking good um, in whatever way you want to think about that phrase. Um, for me, it was very much that they looked toned they looked muscular they looked fit they looked you know they looked sporty um i began to get very very in down in myself inwardly about how i looked um and and how my body performed and how i would feel after you know being out on the water or trying to you know do a bit of a run or those kind of things 
And uh, so I decided to go on a healthy eating kick. Um, you know, like we all probably have thought about it at different times. And it started as something really simple, really, you know, there was nothing to it. I didn't have any goals. I didn't have any things I wanted to achieve. I just wanted to clean up my life a little bit, I suppose, was would be the best way to phrase it. And so that developed into um, what some people would call very much a clean eating regime, um, where I had knocked on the head of a lot, a lot of what I suppose are considered unhealthy things um, in, you know, out of my diet. Um, but it wasn't doing me any good. That's what I realize now. Um, yes, I was, you know, I, I developed what is called orthorexia. It's, it's one of the, the, I suppose, the more unknown eating disorders out there. Um, it's very similar to anorexia. Um, but in a way, it's, it's more, instead of just restriction around your food, it's also around anything that you do eat you need to know the provenance of it. You need to know exactly where it came from, how it was produced. Um, you need to know know that it's absolutely the healthiest option of everything out there that you could be having. Um, so that was the initial side of it, was the orthorexia side of it. Um, but that snowballed then into anorexia. Um, and, and I won't go into all the details of that because they can be triggering for people. And, you know, people don't necessarily need to know that. But how I realized that I had developed an eating disorder is actually kind of it's it's ironic in a way because one of the one of the behaviors that I developed was counting calories and watching my weight that kind of thing and I was doing that through uh, an app on my phone Um, I won't name the app but it is a fairly popular one among athletes um, and among you know people who are who are active and it had a blog in it. Um, and one day, you know, I was always looking through the blog, look, looking for new recipes and, you know, zero calorie meals versus, you know, this is the other option, all this kind of crap. And um, one day they posted a, a, an article in the blog, which was, if you have any of these uh, symptoms, you may suffer from orthorexia. And I said, I wonder what this is all about. I'd never even heard of it. Didn't know I had an eating disorder went into it and there was about I think eight or nine different bullet points and I had seven of them and that woke me up straight away and I went wow what is going on here um and gave me a real fright real real fright and at this stage I was starting to suffer a lot of physical symptoms that you get when you start to restrict your your diet and you restrict your intake of food um there's there's studies out there to to show what the symptoms are but they're they're nasty you know they're 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 very uncomfortable you your body essentially starts to shut down in a way starts to cannibalize itself and um believes that there's no food out there anymore so it has to shut itself down to maintain itself to survive in a way um and the physical symptoms that start to happen because of that are very uncomfortable and they're not just simple things like tiredness you know there's 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 a lot of really horrible stuff that goes on um so and i had started to develop these symptoms and I didn't know where they were coming from again because I didn't have an eating. I didn't know I had an eating disorder. So all of a sudden, things started to add up in my head. Things started to make sense, and I started to go, "Wow, what's going on here?" And from that moment on, because if you think about it, up until that point, everything I was doing, I was keeping to myself, to to you know to a point. Um, I was Carolina could see how I was eating, but. I was constantly telling her and believing myself that it was just a healthy eating drive, a healthy kick, you know, just cleaning up my life. That's all it was. 
And all of the mental things that were in my head, I wasn't talking about because I wasn't necessarily aware of them. Or if I was aware of them, I didn't feel comfortable talking about them because I felt they were wrong. Um, so all the mental things are going out of control. And all of a sudden, through the food side of things, I can see something that I have control over because I can control my weight. I can control my weight loss. I can control how much food I'm taking in. So for someone who feels like their life is out of control, this is the one thing you can control. And that's why it became such a big part of my life. Um, and the behaviours got worse. The, you know, the restriction got worse. The uh, daily activity, daily exercise became manic. Um, it, was, it was completely out of control. When you think about it, it's funny, you're looking for control. My life, in essence, was out of control. Um, my behaviours were out of control. And um, but the first thing I did when I saw this article in that blog um, was I, be, I, I became honest about it um, and I said it to Carolina straight away. And I said, look, I've just read this article. I think there's something funny going on here. Um, that's all I can say. And what do we do? And that was the start of, I suppose, the it was the start of my recovery, but it wasn't the start of seeing the good things yet. And Owen, when you felt that it was time to tell your partner, were you scared at all? Oh, I was hugely scared. I was in tears on the couch when I was talking to her about it. Um, I, I was, uh, I was, I was kind of very. Sh- I was shocked. Um, you know, how does someone of thirty-seven? Uh, no, was it? No, sorry. How does someone of thirty-six, who is a male, heterosexual, regular guy? Um, and the reason I say heterosexual is important there, and, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, but it made no sense to me because I'd never heard of that, about that before. You know, you, you're familiar with you know the stereotypes of young girls, women, um, and homosexual men um, who would have eating disorders in the public eye. You know, they, they, they're the ones that are more common, so they're the ones that maybe you see more often in the media or being reported upon. But for someone of my age and my demographic to have an eating disorder, I'd never come across that. I'd never heard of it, whether it was anorexia, whether it was binge eating disorder, whether it was bulimia, whether it was orthorexia, whether it was just disordered eating. I'd never come across anyone. Um, I'd never heard of it. Um, So I was very scared. Was there ever a moment after you realised that you had an eating disorder and that you perhaps needed help that you liked it and that you liked the way you looked, you know, did you become sort of attracted to your disorder and not willing to let it go? So when I told Carolina, and I don't really remember that moment, I just have a vague, vague kind of memory of it. Um, But I know for a fact that, look, I'll be honest, even to this day, I still don't want to give it up completely. (laughs) Um, I suppose to to give you a fuller answer on that, yeah, when when I told Carolina, I, I told her because I felt a need to be honest about it. I felt a need to say something about it. Um, I suppose I didn't even think about it at the time that this would lead to treatment and it would lead to potential recovery. Um, all it was at the time was I was just... I was just talking about it. Um, I met a friend of mine as well because at the time I had all these physical symptoms that I couldn't make sense of and I was, I decided I'd go to a doctor to try and, you know, see if I could get some, you know, checkups done to see whether there was anything 
maybe and I use the phrase anything more serious going on but anything more like you know a, a physical condition cancer or, or something like that that was causing all the weight loss even though in my head I knew what was causing all the weight loss. Sorry, I look at pictures of myself back then. Um, you know, I used to take a lot of photos of myself um, more for eating disorder behavior more than anything else. Um, and I look at myself and I, and I look at how I looked then. And honestly, like, it's funny. I, look at, I, I now can see myself as being sick. But back then I thought I looked the best thing I ever did. And did Carolina not notice a physical difference in you? She did, and 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 this is so. This is where I need to be a little bit careful um, in how in how maybe this is phrased in whatever goes out, um, okay. because on, Carolina, Carolina was my greatest rock in all of this, um, and I'm genuinely mean that I, I'm not saying that just to you know sweeten her or anything. She really was. What she has gone through is just how she's how she put up with it. Is still here. I don't know, but she did, and there is things she didn't notice um early on um when i was just doing the healthy eating but there's things i didn't notice either and in a way i'm going to say my eating disorder so if you put me and my eating disorder and and they're two different mindsets my eating disorder was able to convince her that what i was doing was my normal mindset and that what i was doing was absolutely fine um so in a way and it's horrible to say, but in a way I hoodwinked her or my eating disorder hoodwinked her into thinking that everything was fine and that there was no problems, that I was just living a healthy life. Um, and to the point where I read that article, you see, what you, I suppose what you've got to remember is when I read that article and I was honest with her, I was still, it was another two or three months before I officially went into treatment. Um, so I lost significant amount of more weight in, in, that, in that period of time. So when I was honest with her for the first time, or honest with the world for the first time, not necessarily just her, but with the world outside of my own head, um, I maybe didn't look as sick as I ended up looking. So it's, and, and to this day, Carolina still beats herself up over that. And, and I have to really help her with that to, to say, this is not your fault. This is not something you did. It's not something you missed. This is something that just happened, that both of us were not aware of. No one was aware of it, not even my family. Um, but I was doing behaviours in front of them that they didn't pick up on. I always remember Christmas Day of 2018, because I, I would always go home to my family for Christmas and um, went home. And I had to, so the church is about half an hour away. And, you know, I always go to, to Mass on Christmas Day more for the family gathering side of it than the religious aspect of it and, and the beautiful music and things like that. Um, and it's about, it's about maybe a 15 minute drive away, 30, 40 minute walk away. And I had to walk to the church and I had to walk home. Um, I didn't have to, you know, there was a car going to the church, but in my head, I had to. And my family couldn't understand this. Why is he walking on his own to the church? Why is he walking back from the church on his own? And it was because I was banking my food for later on that day, you know, without realising it, that it was an eating disorder behaviour. That's what I was doing. I was essentially saying, I have to walk to the church because that will allow me to eat my food later. And they didn't pick up on that. So it's it's very hard for people to pick up on it. Um, I always remember another another moment be, again before everything had become open and honest 
where I was away with friends um, on a mini festival kind of a thing. When we, back when we could go to festivals. And um, the, it was kind of like we were doing these touring days and, and we were going to a particular place that did really good pizza. And I knew they did good pizza because I'd had it there before. And I remembered the taste of it. I remembered how good it was. And we were sitting outside in their kind of their beer garden area listening to a comedy performance. And I knew that after that there was going to be pizzas coming out. Free pizzas. And there was going to be bucket loads. There was going to be more than enough for everyone. There was about 30 of us on the tour. And uh, I couldn't wait for these pizzas to come out. And I couldn't wait to see them. And I couldn't wait to smell them. And I knew they were coming. And I knew they were coming. And here they come out the door. And okay, oh, now you can't have any pizza. And I couldn't have a slice of pizza. And I wouldn't let myself have a slice of pizza. So I couldn't wait for it to come. But the reason I couldn't wait for it to come was because I wanted to control myself and say you couldn't have any. Oh, and when did you decide that you needed treatment? So the period of time between when it all first came out and and, and me going into treatment was probably one of the most difficult periods of my life. In fact, not was probably. It was the most difficult period of my life. Um, not because I knew treatment that was on the horizon, but because I, I had decided that I needed to try and find some help. I didn't know what the help was going to be. and I didn't know what the treatment was going to be, but I needed, I knew I needed to do something. And so with the help of, um, Carolina and with the help of my mum and dad, uh, we started to investigate what options would be. But in among all of this, you've got to remember that I'm still losing weight. My physical health is still deteriorating. And one of the big parts of that is that um, your mental ability, your, 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 uh, what's the word, your, your mental reasoning, your mental capacity deteriorates as well. Um, so because your brain is shutting down, essentially, is what it's doing. So your ability to make decisions, your ability to see things clearly, your ability to see things um, logically becomes very difficult. And then you add into that the distress of knowing that you're sick and potentially someone's going to take away your eating disorder from you. Um, And also that your life may go back out of control again. I went into this whole other world um, where I was having panic attacks um, I always remember the very the very first panic attack that I had was actually up in Sligo with my mum and it was over something as simple as we were going to try and make lunch um, and my mum, my family, I suppose, would have a very good habit if you if you if you know if you look at it from their point of view where everything just gets put out and then you make your own bit of lunch whatever you want so you know cheese gets thrown out lettuce gets thrown out ham all that kind of stuff out all out on the counter and you make whatever you want. Whereas when I was in the depths of my restriction and my eating disorder, everything was pre-planned. Everything was, it's exactly this amount of cheese, exactly this amount of ham, exactly this amount of this and whatever and all that. So I was up in Sligo and uh, next thing we went out into the kitchen to start putting stuff out on the counter. And I think my mum just said something like, would you like a bit of smoked applewood cheese? And she kind of put a thing down on the counter. And this wasn't in my plan. This wasn't in my, what I was going to have that day. And I ran. I literally turned. I ran out of the kitchen, ran out of the hall, out of the front door, and I ran down the side of the house. And I just remember, I remember standing there and I was frozen to the ground. My eyes were wide open like rabbits on stalks, rabbits in headlights. And I couldn't move. 
I was completely frozen. I, I, you know, f- freeze flight or fright. I had taken flight. That's what had happened. And uh, my mum, I remember hearing her come to the front door calling me because she didn't know where I was gone. And uh, she was calling me. I couldn't answer her. And eventually I came back in. Maybe after about 15, 20 minutes, I, I managed to kind of, the adrenaline came down, the, the body started to wake up a little bit again. And um, I went in back into the hallway and she was there. And she says, where did you go? And I just put my arms around her and I burst into tears burst into tears I completely just disintegrated um because I didn't know what was going on and I remember sitting in the chair she sat me down in the living room chair when that happened and all I kept saying was I'm so confused I'm so confused because I couldn't make head nor tail of what was going on in my head all these different things happening all these eating disorder behaviors happening you know I'm a logical guy I'm a rational guy I'm a pretty normal guy so why was I doing all of these crazy things and um, why was I feeling the way I was feeling why could I not handle the fact that my mum put something out on the countertop for lunch and um, why was I sitting in a chair in floods of tears at age 36 or 37 whatever age it was beside my mum and all she's trying to do is calm me down um, and all I kept repeating like a chant was I'm so confused. I'm so confused in among the tears and the, you know, the sobbing and all that. And um, that was the very first panic attack I had. And after that, I had numerous ones of them. Um, and this is, again, all as your body starts to, to shut down and the mental thinking gets worse. And so that's one side of what happened. Then when I, in among that, where I had moments of clarity or moments of, you know, I wanted, you know, I do want to try and get better here. Um, I started looking into what are the possibilities for therapy, what are the possibilities for, you know, physical and physical medical intervention um, all that kind of stuff. And it would take me forever to go through all of it. But to tell you, essentially, I spoke to 14 different people and had to tell them all my story before I got anywhere um, in terms of trying to get help. Um, and I had to repeat my story every single time from the start. And that became the most frustrating and tiring thing I've ever had to do. Um, because unfortunately in this, in, in this country, the mental health and physical health departments, systems, whatever you want to call them, number one, don't talk to each other. And number two, don't talk among themselves. Um, so you can be telling your story to one person. And assuming that it's going to go up the line or it's going to go across the line to the appropriate people so that when they talk to you, they'll have a good idea of what's going on. And that never happened. Um, so every time I met someone new, I had to sit down and I had to try and explain myself and try and explain what was going on. Standing there like, you know, Oliver Twist asking, can I have some more, you know, just looking for that little bit of help. And I'm not going to say these people were bad people. None of the people I met along the way were bad people. But unfortunately, the system is bad to the point where if you are looking for help, to have to tell 14 different people, like any person in their right mind would want to give up in among all of that. And it was only because I had those moments of clarity in among it that I was, you know, able to keep going. Um, and it was only because of Carolina, my mum and my dad, that they were able to keep me going as well, because I was getting tired. I was getting sick of it. You know, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And it did get to the point um, where um, I, so I ended up, a couple of things happened. I, I found a GP 
because one of the important things in mental health and one of the important things in mental health recovery is that you have a trusted team around you. Um, and I'm, what I mean by that is a team that you trust in um, that you know are there for you. And that, you know, everyone could find different people to do that. It's, it's not that people are bad or people are wrong or, you know, some people just don't suit, suit some people. Um, I initially went to a GP very early on in my healthy eating um, back when I noticed I was losing a bit of weight and I wasn't sure whether it was good or not and all she told me was to eat a few extra nuts and berries for my breakfast that was the phrase I got and um, I always remember that um, so from that day on I knew that GP wasn't for me um, so I went on the hunt and eventually I found a GP based in Ashburn in County Meath and I live in Hoth County Dublin so it was about a 40 minute drive every time I needed to go to him um, but there's a couple of living angels in my life and he's one of them um, he he saw me for what was going on he never he never said it to me overtly at the very beginning and I think that was because he knew it would frighten me but he could see what was going on and so he kept trying and kept pushing first of all for 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 some uh, medical intervention to make sure there was nothing else going on because he had to do that you know they, they have to make sure that it's not a physical issue that it is a mental issue even though he knew well that's what it was um so he tried and i went to the first hospital and you know i was sent to a and e by him with a referral letter and they didn't take me in i went to another hospital about a week later they didn't take me in eventually a hospital took me in um and I'm not saying that I was, you know, that I was deserving of being taken in or anything like that. But it was, this, this is kind of where, this is where um, some people with eating disorders never feel they're good enough. And this is kind of where this starts to kick in now that I kind of go, well, you know, why should any of the hospitals take me, take me in? But this one eventually did. And I spent two and a half weeks in that hospital. Um, and yeah. Uh, I spent two and a half weeks in there um, the first three or four days of it were physical tests um, again just to make sure there was nothing untoward so that involved MRIs, it involved uh, colonoscopies gastroscopies you name it, everything um, I, I had the world and its works done to me over those three or four days um, and then they realised there was nothing there was nothing medically wrong from a physical point of view um, but they kept me in because my weight was continuing to drop. You know, the behaviours I had in the hospital or the eating disorder behaviours were continuing in the hospital and they could see that. So I had a wonderful dietitian in the hospital um, who really, really helped me um, to begin to see what was going on. Very, very slowly begin to see what was going on. And... Um, but she was very gentle about it because she knew there wasn't so much, you know, wasn't so much she could do. She's just a dietitian, and I don't mean that in that she's just a dietitian, but she didn't have the mental, the mental health skills, let's say. Um, but I always remember the very first night I was in that hospital. Um, I remember turning to my dad when I was lying on the bed, and if you can imagine, you know that sign, you know, you know Jesus on the cross, and his arms are out like that, and his hands are. And, or sorry his legs are crossed in front of him I was kind of lying on the bed like that um, and I turned to my dad and I always remember saying to him I finally feel safe and the reason I felt safe was because I was out of control but under control so the control had been taken away from me I no longer had the control so I was out of control and I was under control because the nurses and the doctors were now looking after me 
So I, w- I was no longer a danger to myself through the behaviours that I was doing. As much as I still wanted to do them, I finally felt like I was getting a bit of help, you know. And um, so that continued for those couple of weeks. And I always remember there was, a, there was another panic attack I had in the hospital that day, or not that day, that during that time, where I was moved from one ward to another ward, kind of unexpectedly. Um, I, I didn't know that it was, it was going to happen. And I had become very comfortable in the wards that they put me in initially. Um, you know, I'd made some friends in the room that I was in and I had gotten to know the nurses and they were being nice and gentle towards me because there was so much going on in my head that I couldn't understand. And um, at the same time, I was glad, as I said, that, you know, by having that feeling of when that first night when I said that to my dad, that kind of told me that, yeah, I'm, I'm finally getting a bit of help here I was just I was so out of control so like yeah they moved me from one ward to another ward unexpectedly one day and uh, when I went up into the new ward it was around kind of midday something like that and I was moved into this eight bed ward immediately I kind of went mm, don't know who any of these people are they're all older men um there was one guy watching horse racing on the TV. There was another guy in another bed, didn't look very friendly. There was another guy who was kind of half in the bed, half out of the bed, looked like maybe he'd been in a fight the night before. I felt really uncomfortable immediately when I was going into that ward. And so that, so my anxiety was initially kind of heightened by the move. Then second of all, there was more thrown onto that. And um, then... I remember the the lunch trolley came in maybe about five or ten minutes after I'd been moved into the ward, and the guy I had made I had made a particular order for lunch in the previous ward that I was in, and um, so when the lunch trolley came in, they had an offering of whatever, and uh, I said, uh, "Oh, I actually I was only looking for a salad. Um, I actually ordered one when I was down in the other ward." And he says, and the guy behind the trolley, obviously they've got how many different patients they have to look after he didn't really care and he says well this is your choice and I just went oh okay uh I'll leave it so and 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 I didn't take anything and after he kind of disappeared I could feel I could just feel everything starting to rise inside me everything starting to come up I walked out the the, the, the door of the ward and I turned to the left towards the nurse's station and the first nurse that I saw I don't even know who she was couldn't tell you uh, I hadn't met any of the nurses really up there yet. I walked stort, straight towards her and I burst into tears and I just turned to her and I says, I'm not fucking crazy. I'm not. And I and she tried to c- calm me down and it just kept getting worse and kept getting worse and kept getting worse to the point where I walked, started walking down the, the corridor um, out through the door of the the main door of the ward and I started hitting my head off the wall. And I said, like, I'm not fucking crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. And then she brought me back into this other room and I sat down. And again, I was just constantly, I couldn't, the whole confusion thing came back again. The whole, what the hell is going on in my life, you know? Um, and I rang Carolina because my parents and Carolina had kind of left earlier on in that morning. And my parents were halfway back to Sligo. They turned around, they came back, Carolina came back. And it took me the whole day to finally get, you know back to some level of normality 
But like then that night, my mum, who's, you know, she's in her 60s and I'm 30, whatever age, six, seven. She had to sleep in the chair beside me that night because I didn't want to be on my own. I didn't want to feel alone, you know. Um, Carolina had to do the same the following night. And eventually things started to ease off. Things started to, you know, I, I started to feel more comfortable. But that's what happens to someone in that kind of situation um, where you're in the wrong place. Um, I was in wards for physical intervention. I needed help medic and mentally, you know, I needed people who understand it, mental health help, mental health, you know, medicine. Um, not that any of these people, and I have to keep saying that, not that any of these people were doing anything bad, not that any of them were doing anything, you know, that they shouldn't have or, or were doing it because, you know, they just wanted to. They just didn't have the right skills. Um, you know, another nurse one day said to me, if I ate as slowly as you, I'd be skinny too. You know, um, and you know you don't want to be you don't want to be told that. So, anyway, that that all happened, and then we came out. The whole process of me talking to all the different people happened. Um, but it got to the point one day where I was getting so frustrated with not getting anywhere with all of this asking for help, you know, or looking for help, and and being very brave and courageous and finding the strength within me to to continue to put myself out there and not get anywhere that one day I just broke down completely. Um, I was at home with my mum. I was lying on the couch. She was watching the TV and she was probably looking after me more than she was watching the TV. And I was, I just started crying on the couch. I was gone and um, I started telling her that I was having these uncomfortable thoughts um, about, you know, not wanting to be around anymore. Um, and they were thoughts, again, this was the one, I suppose, one thing that I'm proud of in all of this is when any of these things started to happen or early on with the eating disorder, now with these thoughts, the minute they happened, I would talk about them because I knew that there was something wrong, you know. Um, so I said to her, I, really um, I, I said, to her, I said, look, I'm, I'm having I'm having these thoughts. I'm not seeing myself in the thoughts. I'm seeing other people, but I'm understanding um I'm understanding how someone in a car going under the water, drowning, can start to find a sense of peace. I can feel that. I'm not seeing myself doing it, but I can see it. And two days later, the same thing happened, but this time I could see myself. Um, I, I, I could see myself in that imagery. And that really, really scared me um, to the point where I had another panic attack that I couldn't come out of and an ambulance was called and I was taken into the hospital and um, that night in A&E um, was like spending a night in a tent in a war zone um, it was the most horrible night I've ever had um, I was absolutely zapped because I had no energy left um, I had no mental energy I had no physical energy left I was sitting in the chair staring into space in front of me my mum and dad and Carolina were all with me and they did turns throughout the night to look after me and we were trying to get help and trying to talk to someone and eventually I think I went in about eight o'clock in the evening and about four o'clock in the morning I finally got saw, seen by a psychiatric reg registrar uh, who said own if we t if we take you in here we're bringing you into a place that doesn't suit you because you're not, you know, the medical issue or mental issues that you have are not um, acute from the point of view of psychotic or, you know, uh, that type of a mental issue. Um, they're more, they're in need of therapy. They're in need of, you know, long-term therapeutic 
um, intervention. Not, not necessarily uh, medical drug intervention. And they were right in saying that. If they put me into the mental ward in in um, in Connolly, or no, Bowmount, I think was, was where I was that night, um, they would have put me into the wrong place. It wouldn't have been the right place for me. So I ended up going home. And at that point, we knew that we really had to do something. Um, so I ended up going into a facility called Lois Bridges, um, which is uh, at the time, and I still believe, although I think there's another one coming on stream, um, the only residential eating, door, eating disorder centre in Ireland. Um, it has eight beds and it's the only centre in Ireland. Um, eight beds, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's it, like there's, it's, it's such an under-resourced um, issue in Ireland. Um, and, and, and yeah, there was eight beds in that facility and I had already been up to that facility prior to that to have a, to have a consultation with them during that time of talking to all those different people. And for reasons I won't go into, I, I didn't feel at all comfortable in there. I, I got discharged. Um, so it was a long journey in there, but my God, it was the best thing I ever did. Um, it really was. It was, um, oh God, it was, uh, I use the word a privilege, um, sometimes when I talk about it, because there was one morning I was, I was in that facility and it's like a normal house. You know, we all had our nice bedrooms and things like that. There's a nice big kitchen and, you know, living area and really, really comfortable place to be in. And when you looked out, you looked out onto a main road where there was a set of traffic lights at the end of it. And um, the traffic lights every morning would back up with lots of people going to work, you know. So I used to, sta I used to stand there getting dressed in the morning. We'd be up for about half eight, something like that. And I'd stand there getting dressed, looking out the window. And I see all these cars on the road and they're all, you know, lining up at the traffic lights. And there's moms and dads and people going to work and people dropping their kids off to school and all that kind of thing. And I realised that every one of them is probably, if not more, stressed, anxious, worried about life as I was. Um, but yet they're not getting a chance to even think about it because they're stuck in this society that we have where, you know, you have to go to work, you have to mind your kids, you have to do this, you have to do that. You have to do all these things. And I had been given the opportunity to not have to do any of that, to sit back to look at myself, to understand myself, to figure out who I was, to figure out what I wanted, to figure out what it was would give me joy in life. Um, and that was a huge privilege. Um, it came from an awful place. It came from an awful situation, but it was a huge privilege. Um, and one that I'm extremely thankful for, that both my parents and Carolina uh, pushed me towards it that I met the therapist that I still have to this day, who was another one of my living angels. Um, I met her on my worst day, and the day after I came out of Beaumont that night when I'd been brought in in the ambulance, met her the following day um, in, the, in the HSE centre. She's a public therapist, but happened to be a private therapist in this centre as well, so I was able to continue that relationship with her. Um, and... To this day, after I came back out of Lowest Bridges and back into the public system, she's still my therapist. So I've had a continuing relationship with her, which has been great. Um, and that's really important. Again, I go back to that idea of the trusted, the trusted team around you. And um, 
I would trust her with my deepest, darkest secrets. Um, and I would trust her to, to help me. I wouldn't trust her with them. I would trust her to help me get through them and to work them out. Um, she never influences me. She only ever helps me challenge my thoughts. Um, and that's, that's a key thing, you know. So I spent three months in there and I went through every different type of therapy you can think of. Um, and I spent time with the most amazing women and one man in the time I was there. Um, I only met one other man while I was there um, much younger than me uh, he was I think maybe only in his early 20s um, and everyone else that was there in the time that I was there was younger than me I was the oldest by far all the other girls and, and women that were there were younger than me but did you find that particular detail quite difficult I'll t- I, I was what I was just going to say was that um, in the first day or maybe two days, I was so drugged up that I didn't even notice um, because I went in there under so much distress um, that all I needed to do was just sleep for three days, sleep for four days. So they just basically gave me everything to knock me out um, and, and, and let my body do some sort of recovery, try and eat some sort of food and, and you know, just start the process. And then I very quickly began to realise through the help of the therapists, through the help of the other clients that were in there, um, and just, I suppose, common sense. And, and my, maybe this is where my soft touch nature came in, that um, we're all just humans. We just look a bit different, but we're all humans. And we all suffer the same problems, and we all suffer the same issues and the same thoughts, but be they happy or sad. Um, and yes, we have different quirks, you know, and different physical makeups and 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 different hormonal changes and imbalances and 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 things like that but at the end of the day the world throws the same shit at us and we have to deal with it and um you know those girls that i met in that time that i was in there taught me so much about myself and also i taught them i believe a lot about themselves because of the age differences and because i could give them a totally different perspective on life that you know they as a young early 20s girl or fella didn't have you know and again it was never to tell them what was right or wrong um that was never the case it was only ever just to tell them this was my experience um and you know maybe to consider this as an option or consider this as a way of thinking you don't have to do it you don't have to take it on but consider it but also the way they challenged me um, to, to the way I would think about myself. Um, I met some of the most amazing people in there um, and, and people who, a lot, who I will be proud of for the rest of my life um, because what, what you go through in there is not easy. You know, you, you knock yourself down to the very bottom to start building yourself back up again. Um, you have to delve into places that you would never, ever want to delve into. Um, open doors that you just don't want to and things that you've kept closed for so long and it takes a long time to get to the point in your therapy be it one-to-one be it group therapy be it art therapy be it uh, cooking therapy whatever type of therapy it is um, it takes a long time to get through that and something I tell my my friends to this day because nowadays I, I would talk to my friends quite a bit about mental health um, you know and some issues that they might be having or things like that and one of the things I always try to say to them is don't try and come up with a quick decision um, look at all the options and think about all the options 
But let them just mill away in your head. Let them mill away in your body. Put them away for a little while. They'll come back. Different things will start to add up. Different things will start to um, make sense. Different things will seem irrelevant. And eventually you'll come to the conclusion that you want to come to. Um, Or you'll come to the answer that you want to come to. And that's what happens in therapy as well. You can't expect, and this is where the whole idea of going in in two weeks and coming back out better was never going to happen. Um, After two weeks, I was probably only beginning to open some of the doors, you know, very slowly or beginning to find the trust in people around me there to be willing to open some of the doors. Um, And even after 12 weeks, I hadn't done all of that. You know, that's why my therapy continues to this day, Um, because we all have things that every day we wake up and we go, hmm, I wonder hmm, is that right? Hmm, is that not, not right? And by having a therapist to help you work through those things, um, it's like it's like wearing the clothes you wear each day. It's something I think everyone should have, you know. Um, yeah. It's it's a huge yeah. help in life, you know. So that was my treatment. Owen, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with the sea and kind of the therapy that you got from the sea and how it makes you feel being in the water? Uh, my love affair with the sea began when I was about six months old. No, sorry, a little bit later, about eight months old. Um, I was reading, my granddad has sailed all his life um, and he's owned different boats all his life. And he, he he's a man who keeps a record of everything. And I mean, to the to the full stop and the cross the T, dot the I, everything is there's a record of. So as a sailor and as a boat owner, he used to keep a log of all of his different boats. Um, and by a log, I mean a, a kind of a journal or a diary of his adventures with his boats. And he happened to give me one of his logs there recently to read um, of his very first boat. And I was reading through it and I discovered that at about age seven or eight months, I was taken out on my first trip um, on, on the boat. So I believe that's where my original love affair of the water began. Um, and to this day... I still have that. Um, there's an island just because I'm very lucky to live on the beach nowadays. Um, my back garden is the beach. Um, it's something I'll never take for granted um, and, and something that I, that I feel very, very lucky to have. Um, and there's an island just off where we live. And there's a picture I have of me aged about two or three on my granddad's boat with a sailor cap on just off that island. And, um, you know, yesterday... Ireland's Eye yeah and and like yesterday I was off Ireland's Eye on my paddleboard you know so I still go back there 30, 38 years later you know um, which I think is really special um, but the water for me throughout my life has played a part so early on I was you know doing the bit of sailing with my parents um, on the you know, on the boats that they would have had and I then found uh, through school uh, my sport you know if you want to say that everyone finds a hobby or a sport in their life mine was swimming um, and I became a competitive swimmer um, for approximately 12 years. Um, there was good sides and bad sides to that. Um, something that I actually realized in my therapy was that while you swim for a club and you swim for a team, essentially, um, you are always swimming against your team- teammates. You're never swimming with them, generally, uh, unless it's in a relay race, but they don't happen very often. So as much as you're part of a team, you're still kind of competing with everyone in the team. 
And that doesn't really bring a sense of camaraderie, doesn't really bring a sense of collaboration about it. Um, and that was something I only realised in my therapy, uh, that maybe that didn't help my, my development, uh, my, my mental development of feeling like I was, you know, wanted, feeling like I was part of a, a group, a tribe. Uh, you know, we, uh, as ancient, ancient humans, we were part of a tribe and, you know, we live very isolated lives nowadays. So swimming was a huge part of my life. Um, and then, then I kind of, for, for a few years, I, I lost the water. Um, I lost the water when I first moved to Dublin because I lived in Limerick originally. And uh, when I moved to Dublin, we lived in the city centre. And yeah, we were close to the river, but uh, you live in a big concrete jungle and, and, and it's, it's very difficult to get a sense of, of, of water in that, you know, in that area. So I lost it for a little while. But then as soon as we moved to where we live now, um, back right beside the sea, um, I refound that love of the water again. And um, I really enjoy it. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, I swim, I kayak, I paddleboard, I kite surf. Um, I used to do some scuba diving, but not anymore. Um, and for me, it was a great outlet for, you know, friendship for you know that camaraderie that I missed um the kite surfing community in particular I don't know what it is about kite surfing but it brings together people who are just the most generous nice fantastic people you'll ever meet um and and the 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 fun that you have on the water on the beach you know wherever they're just amazing people there's no egos there's no competitiveness it's just people helping people and it's really good fun um so I did that for a number of years but then when I got sick um that all took a backseat um, because I did like I didn't have the physical strength anymore to do it. Um, everything disappeared. I, I have pictures of the last kiting session I had before I, I really got sick. And I look at myself and I say, Jesus, how was that body even able to stand on that board, let alone actually move with a kite attached to it? Um, I, I just don't know. I, I, and I must have been putting my body under f- severe physical distress uh, at the time. But again, it was part of the behaviours. You know, I'd come off the session after two hours and I wouldn't eat a scrap of food because I felt I didn't, you know, I didn't want it or I wasn't allowed to. Um, So all of that took a back seat and I missed it so much. I missed it hugely. Um, And I dreamt about it. When I was in therapy, I'd be lying in my bed at night and I'd, I'd be lying there awake, but I'd be dreaming of the movements of how you move the kite in the air and you know, how you get up on the board and all those different things. And I, and I just, I'd be lying there imagining it all and feeling what it felt to, to have the, you know, that spray in your face and the sun coming down on you. And, um, just that, that whole, I, I, I loved visualizing it. And I used that a lot in my therapy sessions as well, you know, in terms of that was a place I would always go to if I needed to find somewhere for solace. I would imagine myself on a boat in the middle of the ocean, um, sun coming down, no sails up on the boat, just floating just floating with the sound of the water um, and me lying on the deck of the boat. And, and that was my place of solace. And um, so when I came out of treatment, because um, when I was in treatment, I was away from home. So I didn't see any of the kite surfing. I didn't see any of the, the water activity. So I wasn't really, I suppose I wasn't, uh, I wasn't missing it as much. Um, but then when I came home and I saw it all starting out there and, uh, you know, everyone out on the water and having the fun and hear my friends going out and all that kind of stuff, I did start to miss it again. And I started to miss it a huge amount, but I still hadn't built up enough strength to be able to go out. But the other side of it was that 
if you can imagine having a hobby disorder, I, you know, we use the phrase an eating disorder, have a hobby disorder where you want to go out on the water, you really want to go out and you have all the gear ready and you have everything good to go. But the minute you go out on the water, that might mean that you're better. And if you're better, then everything, you know, everything goes back to normal and life goes out of control again. And so for a long time, I probably was physically ready to go out on the water, but mentally I couldn't let myself. I couldn't allow myself to go out because I was afraid of what would happen. I was afraid of um, of what people would think. Um, and I remember the first day I did go back out, which was uh, in July of 2020. Um, and one day Carolina just said, look, will we, will we inflate one of the paddle boards? Um, just, you know, just we'll inflate it, see what happens. That's all, nothing more. So we inflated it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was the small, we have two different paddle boards, one slightly larger, one smaller. And it was the smaller of the two that we inflated. And uh, she said, look, we bring it down to the beach. We'll just, again, we'll just see what happens, you know. And um, so next thing, she put it on the water. And uh, I'd say there was only about four inches of water underneath us. And all I did was kneel on the board. Carolina got on the back of it. It was the small one, so it was quite unbalanced, which was fun to, 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 to start with. But um, I didn't do any work and she paddled maybe about 10 strokes and we got off and that was it. And there's a picture of the two of us when we were doing that. I took a selfie picture of it and you can see in my face, I'm, I'm happy. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm some way normal. Um, but Carolina's face in the background, she is ecstatic. And what that means to me is she finally had her own back. You know, she finally had her her bit of normal back and um, she lived for about two years with this stranger um, in, in the house um, who she knew but didn't know. Um, and, and, you know, to a sense, she had me back um, I, and I was back. Um, and I'm not, you know, if you'd asked me that a year ago, I'd have been scared to say that. Um, I'm not so scared to say it now because I know that I'm back, but I still have things I need to work on. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to feel comfortable saying I don't have because having those things to work on still gives me a sense of purpose, still gives me a sense of value. Um, and without them, I, I still would be a bit afraid, I think, you know. Um, so it's kind of it's, it's a funny juxtaposition, but, you know, that's the way life is at the moment. But what the water gives for me when I go out is it gives me there's a phrase called blue mind um, and it's, it's actually a, sci a scientific thing that the ions in the water um, react with the, I suppose, the ions in your body and the, the electrical charges and they remove the, the, they remove the, dirty, the dirty ions or the, the negative ions um, from the situation, which helps to give you, a, you know, a, a, a positive feeling. But I think there's a deeper thing in it, which is that when we are all conceived and we're in the first nine months of our lives, you know, in the womb, we're surrounded by fluid. We're surrounded, you know, in the womb by, by the amniotic fluid, which in essence is like water. Um, so when I lie there on the water with, you know, nothing underneath me and I'm just lying there looking up at the sky, again, in that position of arms out, legs crossed, looking straight up a bit like I was in the hospital bed, that, that feeling of just having the water lapping around your ears, I believe is making my body recall what it was like when it was growing inside my, my mother's womb. And at that moment in time, I knew nothing about the world. I didn't know whether it was good, bad or indifferent, but I just knew there was something. And um, so 
in a way, you're being brought back to a place where you have no fears, you have no worries, you have no concerns. All you know is you're in this floaty, liquidy kind of a place, you know. Um, and I think that's what it does to us. And and also the other, the third thing that it does is, and this happens a lot when I go out paddleboarding around, say, Ireland's Iron places, is you meet a lot of nature. You meet birds, you meet seals, you meet fish. And those creatures allow you into their world and they give you they give you the the permission to come into their world obviously within limits you don't want to encroach too far that you're going to you know destroy their world do any damage but it's a place where there's no judgment it's a place where there's no um there's no expectations you could sit there on a board looking at a seal and he's looking at you and you don't know what he's thinking and he doesn't know what you're thinking and it doesn't matter because you're just two two beings you know just having fun on the water um so i think there's something in that as well um and lastly it's through some of the friendships that i have through the water um some of the close friendships i have are people who know what you know what what the last couple of years have brought and uh, so they know how to help me on the water when I'm maybe feeling a bit frustrated or a bit worried or a bit you know anxious about something and maybe getting a bit frustrated with not feeling like I'm good enough or things like that and they help me with that and so that brings me a little sense of joy as well so you know all in all that's what the water gives to me it gives me a, a, a world that I feel very comfortable in. <laughs>